Today we come to the book of Hosea. This is the beginning of the 12 books called the Minor Prophets. I don't think in God's eyes they were minor, but they wrote sort of shorter uh, books and also they are far less well known than the major prophets. Now today we study the book of Hosea. Hosea was the last prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. He gave them their last warnings. The two last chance prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel are Amos and Hosea. Right? Amos actually came before Hosea, but the book of Amos is placed after Hosea. So you see, the minor prophets are not placed in chronological order. This is a beautiful book because there are other reasons why God places books in the right place. He somehow led men to put them in the right place, right? So it's not like simple, just chronological. No, no, no. That is a spiritual reason. That's why when you are, that's what we're trying to study now to see the beauty of this book, the balance, just like ecology, everything in perfect. This plant next to this plant, not because this plant is smaller, shorter, whatever. Everything is in perfect place. Okay. Now Amos had actually prophesied about ten years before Hosea, and he was the tough guy. He was the tough accuser warning them and it didn't work somehow when you shout and search at people often it doesn't work it gives us a, a counter reaction so god then sends 10 years later to a prophet called hosea and his style was very different tender wooing pleading right Hold amos focus more on the judgments. Hosea focused more on the compassion, the mercy. Please, please understand God's doing all this because he loves you. All right, so this is uh, the book of Hosea. The time, the scenario in which Hosea was preaching, prophesying, was at the reign of King Jeroboam the second, all right? The two Jeroboams, don't confuse. The first one was the one that broke away. This is the second King Jeroboam the second. At this time, this is 200 years after the breakaway. Okay, get this point out, huh? 200 years. Before that, they all went to the temple. Everybody worshipped God. They understood that God was not some idol. Worship of God was a holy thing. But after they broke away 200 years before Hosea, they, the King Jeroboam I, decided that to prevent his people from being tempted to go to the other kingdom, the southern kingdom, because they wanted to worship God in the tabernacle, the right worship, with the right kind of priest, to prevent that, Jeroboam made two golden calves, placed one at the southern end of his 
kingdom and one at the northern end so that it would be convenient for his people, the Israelites, the northern ten tribes, to go and worship either the one in the north nearer them or if they're nearer the one in the south, they will go to the golden calf in the south. And Jeroboam said, this is the same thing, all right? Instead of having to go so far to Jerusalem and worship in that tabernacle, worship, you know, nothing much there, the tabernacle's old and worn out, and make you a golden calf. Wow, that sounds so much more uh, snazzy, so much more uh, beautiful worship. And so he seduced the people, this was 200 years before Hosea, to worship the two cows. And yet he said to them, actually we are worshipping Jehovah God, but these two golden calves will make it more convenient and more easy for us to worship. All right? So at the beginning, the people still saw themselves as uh, loyal to Jehovah, but for convenience, going to the golden calves to worship. Jeroboam also appointed priests. Nothing to do with the priest God appointed, the line of Aaron, Aaron, but he just appointed whoever, you know, whoever wanted to be a priest, you know, it's an easy job, uh, don't need much skill. And so, the priest of his golden calf worship was this rubbish people who didn't know anything about God. So in the beginning, there was a semblance of them worshipping Jehovah God, but bowing to the golden calves. But after 200 years, they actually even forgot about God at all. The laws of God are totally forgotten. The priests had no clue what the covenant with God was that was given at Mount Sinai. All right, and over 200 years, they started to add other worships into the golden calf worship. The worship of Baal, or Baal, B-A-A-L, which I've said many times is basically a fertility god. And they worship Baal by having sex in the temple because they believe that by having sex, sex produces fertility in humans, it will also produce through their Baal God fertility in their fields, so make them rich and prosperous. And so at this time, by the time of Hosea, the people of Israel were in name Israelites, worshipping Jehovah God. In reality, had no idea who this God was, no clue. The priests and the people had no clue, but they still said, we are Israelites, right? But they worship a golden idol and basically a fertility god, a god of health and wealth. All right. So does that sound somewhat familiar to you now? Ten tribes now calling themselves Israelites, worshiping not God, another god, but claim they were worshiping Jehovah God. Right. Now this is what today I would call nominal. Christians. And nominal Christians are the majority of Christians, inverted commas, in the world today. They call themselves Christians. They could be in Europe, they could be in America, they could be in the Philippines, whatever, South America, and they say, we worship Jehovah God, the God of the Bible. 
but they have never opened a page of the Bible. They have no understanding of the Bible, right? But they worship actually a God of prosperity. Give me wealth, give me health, take care of me, all right? And, you know, that's the kind of scene we have today. The minority are true worshippers of God. The vast majority are nominal Christians, okay? So when people say 33% of the world today are Christians, missiologists lie to people that, oh, one third of the world has heard the gospel. They are just dreaming, right? They are in dreamland, gaga land, right? Because the vast majority have no clue what the gospel is. Just like the priests in Israel are saying, oh, we worship the whole God just a different way. It's not a different way. It's a different God, right? It's a God of their own imagination. So today when you see the word Christian labeled on here, this building, this denomination, this people, just know they're like the Israelites of the north, right? Nominal, in name, Christian, in reality, right? They worship a golden calf. Does that sound familiar? All right, the bull, the bull market, the prosperity market. Everybody dreams of a bull market. In other words, the stocks go up. And at this time, Israel was very prosperous. If you listen to this book, you will hear that they were very prosperous. God allows that. Okay? But very soon, they would go into Assyrian captivity. They're very prosperous, nominal Christian countries today. It's just a matter of time. God's time frame is not exactly like ours, right? A day with the Lord is just a thousand years. Okay, relax. God's going to do what he needs to do. So in Israel at that time, there was huge prosperity, very wealthy people. The rich and poor gap was very big. You can hear that in the, in the Bible, in Hosea, right? The rich taking advantage of the poor. Sounds very familiar, right? They were very corrupt. There were scandals, right? Everybody could be bought with a price, the judges, the priests, the prophets. There was violence because there was a lot of alcohol, right? You hear them having orgies in the temple, right? They had uh, sex. Sex and alcohol seemed to go a lot together, wild, abandoned, right? And so there was sex, there was alcoholism, and of course, with alcoholism, there was violence, all right? And so the whole culture was money crazy, power mad, and sex crazy. Does sound a little bit or a lot like the world we live in today, including and especially in the so-called Christian world. Sad to say, the non-Christian world is not so power mad so money crazy and sex obsessed as the so-called Christian world. And yet God allowed that to go on for a while, of course, just for a while. I hope you get the scenario. So Jer uh, Hosea was sent at this time to warn. He's a prophet for us, actually, huh? to warn who the Christ Christians, nominal Christians, who just believe that they are worshipping God. Now, the book is very difficult 
for you and me to read because it's just a collection of 25 years of Hosea's prophecies. And 99%, I think, almost that, of all the prophecies are in poetry. And for someone like me, and I think a lot of you hearers, Hebrew poetry is not something we digest easily. It's kind of strange to us, right? I'm not a poetic person. Even English poetry or any other language poetry, I struggle. Okay, I'm a, I'm a Greek scholar in the sense of I'm more intellectual than feelings. That's the way we were educated. We were told, don't get too emotional, right? We're always told that the wise guy, whether you are Chinese, Confucian background, or a Western educated guy, our main thing is our intellect. This is the supreme thing. The heart is always put down. Poetry is more about feelings, expressions. And so we struggle. Honestly, I struggle to read the book of Hosea. Before I taught this, I listened, I went through it about four times, right? And I find that for this kind, if you don't have a poetic instinct, you don't have a lot of understanding of terms used in poetry, I would suggest you listen, listen, can I repeat that? Listen to the audio version of Hosea in the message. The message is not a literal translation. It is a paraphrase. It gets the mood and the feeling. So start with a feeling. Get the feel first. And then if you want to switch then to ESV or whatever version you like, please go ahead. All right? But get the feel first. Otherwise, if you jump straight to reading Hebrew poetry, you might get pretty discouraged, pretty lost in it, right? May I just encourage you. I know many of you are very, very resistant to listening to the Word of God because you've been indoctrinated that studying must only be with the eyes, right? The heart must be put aside and only the head comes into play, right? Now, I'm afraid that doesn't help us with the Bible because so much of the Bible is in poetry. Every time God expresses feelings. He uses poetry. God wants to teach facts. He uses prose or narration. All right? So please understand what I'm, where I'm coming from. Don't think I'm trying to make an anti-intellectual. All right? I believe that there is a place for using the head. There's a place for using the heart. Now, the name of Hosea, his name simply means salvation. Okay, he was there to salvage Israel. In the in this book, Israel is commonly called Ephraim or Jacob. I think God didn't want us to think Israel is um, is his people. All right, okay. And so he uses the word Ephraim, one of the tribes, one of the major tribes, or Jacob, okay? Because Jacob was, uh, all right, so you can understand that Jacob was the father of it. But the word Israel tends to be more like 
people, when you think of Israel, you think God's people, right? Ephraim, you think uh, maybe the the offshoot of God's people, okay? So when you see Ephraim and Jacob, it basically means the northern tribes. So he was there to warn them in a very gentle way. God will give you many problems, especially food shortages. Now, they, their God was prosperity. Their God was the fertility God, male, the golden cows, the bull market. And so they, he said, you really thought those things, those gods give you fertility for yourself? I'll show you. Slaps away the food, famines, shortage of food. That's number one. And then, of course, you want health, wealth, and security. All right? They thought these gods gave them security. And so he said, I'll send you to exile. I start with the food problems, then eventually you don't listen, I'll send you to exile. All right? So there, there we was, okay? These gods will give us fertility. And then they also tried to make alliances with Egypt or Assyria. Whenever they were in trouble, they never turned to Jehovah God. They made political alliances, all right? So they were money mad, money crazy. They loved power. They loved power play, politics, right? By making alliances with these people. And then they enjoyed themselves with alcohol and sex and some violence and bullying and, and so on all right so basically this is the scenario okay what is the theme of this book the theme of this book is a hebrew word that is kind of i give you the word huh? we pronounce it as keset but it's spelled c h e s e d Kesed can mean love, but in when you say the word love, our idea of love is lust. You lust after something, after a while the lust is gone, you switch your lust to something else. So maybe the better word for kesed is love plus loyalty. All right, a love that is loyal. Now in the King James Bible, the word is commonly used as loving kindness. Now that sounds a bit not so easy to understand. In other Bibles, it is often used, the word is steadfast love. I think that's easier. Love that is steady, lasting, loyal, right? So it is actually the theme of this book that God's love is not purely lust for a moment, emotion for a moment, but it is a steadfast love. Even when he punishes, the love is still there. All right? And he will never abandon. Never. You see, Israel should have, or Jacob or Ephraim, should have been divorced by God long ago. I mean, they had just rejected God. They just used his name. Imagine a woman carrying your name, married to you, Mrs. Paul Chu, you know, for example, and but she's not loyal to you. Can you imagine how you will feel? It's horrible, right? It's the most terrible feeling, okay? 
So let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 19 and verse 20. All right, I'm using the ESV version, English Standard Version. And I will betroth you to me forever. That's a very strange word nowadays. We didn't use that word. All right, we use the word marry. You know, but the problem with marry is that you can divorce, right? I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, right? And in steadfast love and mercy. I like that word there. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Hebrews 2, 19 to 20. Note the word steadfast love, to betroth, right? To be given in for to be wife to be loyal okay so i hope you see the theme of this book is step first love righteousness injustice not just pure feelings but it's a righteous love okay there is more than just the feeling of love what Today, when you use the word love, it's purely a feeling. There is no loyalty, there's no righteousness, there's no justice in it, all right? It's just a feeling, period, okay? Now, I hope you understand the marriage bond, okay, is a symbol of this. That's why when I conduct a marriage or any pastor who conducts a marriage, would usually as part of the vow, say something to this effect. Do you take such and such to be a lawful wedded wife or lawful wedded husband to love, to obey, to cherish in sickness or in health, in poverty or in riches, for better or for worse, till death do us Heart. No breaking the bond. Right? What God has put together, let no man put asunder. That's almost a standard for me anyway. Nowadays people modify this vow. Right? But that's the picture of a steadfast love for better, for worse, in sickness or in health, in poverty or in riches till death do us part, for God's love till eternity, all right? Because <laughs> it's forever, all right? So, you see here, God looks at Israel as his wife, and he looks at the church as his wife. Let's look at Israel first, right? We're still in the Old Testament. He rescued them. He rescued his bride from Egypt, okay? with blood pass over parts the red sea brings them to mount sinai at mount sinai there's a covenant between god and israel that's a marriage ceremony you see the word and i've taught this before in exodus chapter 20 i will i will i will at mount sinai i will be your god you will be my people i will be your husband you'll be my wife i hope you see that you know in the in part of the marriage ceremony, 
what do you take such and such to be a lawful wedded wife? And the man says, I will. You take your such and such to be a lawful wedded husband? The woman says, I will. That's a, I will. I make a covenant, right? To be loyal and steadfast, okay? So we see here, Israel now has a marriage covenant with God and Mount Sinai. And then God brings them to the promised land. It's like my home, marriage home. And God gives this bride, Israel, everything she needs. It's a land of milk and honey. As long as she obeys him and be a good wife, she's going to be blessed in the land. That's God's promise. But when she disobeys and becomes disloyal, then she's going to get into a lot of problems because it's not just love, it's love and righteousness and justice, right? It's only right. You made a vow to me. How can you run to other gods? But Israel began to worship golden calf, Baal, right? And in that is what we call spiritual adultery. Their spiritual husband is God. They covenanted to be loyal to God. But then they quietly sneak off to the golden calf and say, no, no, I'm still, your, I'm still your wife. Don't worry about that. And then they go and worship the golden calf. They go and have worship in Baal temples, Baal temples. And then they still want the blessing of the God, of God, their husband. So God says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so he punishes his wife, Israel, by famine, by many all kinds of problems, by other invasions of their neighborings coming in. And finally, he punishes them by sending them into exile. Not divorce, separation. All right? Because God cannot divorce. It's a picture of marriage, for better, for worse. Right? But God has put asunder that no man were put together let no man put asunder. Not possible to divorce. Israel rejected God. Israel turned away from God. God never turns away from Israel, right to the end. In fact, in the book of Hosea and all the prophet, prophet, prophecy books, you'll see God saying, return, return, and one day you will be my people. All right? So this is, the, I will give you a new heart and you will be my people forever. Okay, so I hope you see the whole picture. Okay, this is a marriage scene. Now, the book of Hosea starts in a very strange way. God tells his prophet, the one's going to represent him, go marry a prostitute. Imagine that. My goodness, if you were to teach that and say the word prostitute even in the pulpit today, I will get all kinds of text messages. Pastor, you shouldn't use the pulpit for such words, right? I'm sorry, the Bible uses quite horrible words. That's why in the Sunday school, we cannot teach books like Hosea and many of the books of the Bible. We can't. We don't understand. God does call things as they are. But the pulpit has been so sanitized so scholarly, so neat and tidy, all right? These things do trouble 90% of Christians who have never read the Bible through and through. Now, some of the words here are horrible words. You would not 
use those words even on a dinner table and a book, let alone a pulpit, but God uses them. All right? He tells us that even if you're my, my prophet, I want you to marry a prostitute. All right? This prostitute is going to be a terrible woman. And so Hosea marries this prostitute. Right? And then that is in chapter one. And he has three kids by this prostitute. Now, I know the first two may be his kid, the th his actual kid. The third may already be a kid of adultery. Very likely. The first kid, his name is called Jezreel, right? He is a rebellious kid. Okay, it's a picture of Israel rebelling. The second one, the daughter, is called in Hebrew, the Hebrew word, I won't bother you with it. Her name means no mercy, not pitied. Okay, God's gonna, you wanna rebel? I'm gonna not pity you. I'm gonna send famine and and uh, and uh, neighbors to come and attack you mercilessly. The third kid was called not mine, not my people. Ouch! This was exile. Go into exile. No more mine. Go. Separated. You don't want me. Go. Right. So he is told to name his three kids showing the stages of Israel. First, they rebelled against God. God shows no mercy by sending in uh, problems to them. And thirdly, sends them into exile, not my people. All right? That is chapter 1. He's told to marry a prostitute. Can you imagine? The prophets had to go through what we call prophetic symbolisms in their life. Jeremiah was not allowed to marry at all. That's very strange to the people. I mean, it's so strange to any man, right? Why? Because God was wanting Jeremiah to feel what it's like to have no wife. Israel, God loved Israel, but God, Israel did not love him. He was like without a wife, okay? So, when, we, when people began to see Hosea, you know, you tell them, you are like, you have done this to God. You turn away from God. It doesn't mean a thing to people. But when they see Hosea, the man of God has a wife and in he married this terrible wife. Like, you mean, we are like that to God? Terrible like this woman? You mean we are adulterous, we are prostitutes by instinct, always running after others? You know, it became to strike home as it is when you see it in real life, right? You feel it. Imagine a man marrying a prostitute and he knows his wife is always trying to run away to other lovers. Wow, it's a horrible feeling. You said, I feel so sorry for that guy. His wife is like that. If I hear a story like that, I, especially if it's a good guy. Now, when you hear that and think that's God and us, you and me, my friend, listeners, us, we always turn away from God. And then in chapter two, you know what? After the three kids, she leaves. She leaves for her lovers, literally leaves. Because the lovers can give her, you know, maybe 
pamper her with you know, nice things and she has more fun rather than being at home, locked at home with all these chores and responsibilities. A lot of Christians feel that way. You know, with God, I, I cannot do this, I cannot do that, I can't be like my friends having partying and going crazy and, you know, it's, so she left. And you say, well, I mean, if she really has to go, go. I mean, you and I probably say, you mean your wife's like that? Just go, let her go. She doesn't want you, let her go. But chapter 3, God says to Hosea, go and get her back. Now she had been abandoned by her lovers. She, she had partied with them and she probably got older and uglier and, you know, become diseased or whatever. And nobody wants her anymore. And God tells Hosea, go and buy her back. She probably sold herself to brothel keeper or whatever. I don't know. He had to pay for her 15 shekels of silver to, to buy back, like buying a slave that has sold to someone owner and buy the slave back. Chapter 3. God said, Hosea, go and buy her back. She abandoned you. She abandoned your kids. She just left you embarrass you, shame you, your name, everything, but go, please woo her back. And he did that. And people are like, oh my goodness, the prophet took her back? What kind of man is that? Unbelievable. How can you love a woman like that? You know, people were actually seeing the love of God in Hosea. I hope when you listen to this story, you see the love of God in Hosea. You're not listening to a story about Hosea. The whole Bible is not about people. It's not about Joseph. Sunday school is all about the character of this guy, the character of this guy, character studies, character. It's God's study. Get it clear in our head. I'm so I'm emphasizing this point over and I sound like a nagger because I feel that we need to understand. This is Hosea's whole life was to demo, demonstrate who God is. So he woos her back. All right. Chapter 4 to chapter uh, 11 is a whole bunch of warnings. And then chapter 12 to chapter 14 again is a bunch of warnings. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. Imagine his wife comes back and he keeps telling her, please don't run away again. If you do it, I have to punish you again. All right? Okay? That's the picture. Understand that. Right? I, I know you struggle to understand God's feelings. I think you can understand a man's feelings who has a wife who always has this heart to run away from you, from the husband. Okay? Now, why is this the reason? Why is uh, Ephraim or Jacob or Israel always wanting to run away? Now, one of the reasons and possibly the main reason is found in, he, in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1, right? And then later we'll see Hosea chapter 4 gives us the main reason. You see, chapter 3, he woos her back. And then in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land with you. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. He's like, imagine talking to his wife, right? 
and no knowledge of God in the land. Right? The word knowledge, I want you to understand. The word knowledge here, of course, in our thinking, knowledge is always intellectual. And that's why most Bible studies are purely intellectual because you say Bible knowledge. We come to Bible class to get Bible knowledge. And the moment I use the word knowledge, your brain opens. Feel it, feel it. All right? But when the Hebrew word knowledge is given, the Hebrews don't only think of the head. They know that knowledge in the head is very shallow. And their idea of knowledge is not just intellectual, but it is experiential. I not only know this in my head, but I know it in my experience. Okay? So for many people, the knowledge of God is memory versus. But God says, you want to really know me, you don't even don't know the verse, you must know me. You must experience me. Alright? In other words, you must see how real I am. One of the reasons why I go into the mission field and spend lots of time there is because in the mission field, I experience God far more than I can in the comfort of my home church, my home environment. At home, right? to be honest, my home is so wonderful, so blessed by God. I honestly don't need God. I'm so comforted by my family, my wife, my children, my grandchildren, everything is so secure. In my home church, everything is running so well. I honestly don't need God. I don't experience God. I experience the blessings of God. God is third party, far away. But you go on a mission field, you're a nobody. You're exposed to whatever dangers. People look at you and who in the world are you? And so, in every situation in the mission field, you need God for your protection, for your credibility, for your provisions, because you don't have anything else. You're helpless, especially if you go to a new place and not a very friendly place. And then all of a sudden, you really experience God. Wow, He's so real! <laughs> Because there's nobody else to experience. You don't need, you don't need help from others. And then all of a sudden, the one in the background pops up and says, you know, all along I've been helping you, but I've been helping you through people around you and you never saw me. All right? So the word, they have no knowledge of God is more than intellectual. You know, the priest had forgotten about God. Right? I told you, right? The priest here had totally forgotten about God. And so, <clears throat> they... Uh, had just no knowledge intellectually, but the people not only had no intellectual knowledge, they didn't even know who the real God was. They never seen, they never felt, because they were so prosperous, all right? When they went to exile, they needed God. Then they actually experienced the mercy of God, okay? So one problem why many Christians today run away to other gods is they have no knowledge of God. And they say, what do you mean I have no knowledge of God? Do you know how many Bible studies I've been to? 
You know, I went to religious knowledge in school. I how many verses I've memorized. You dare tell me I have no knowledge of God. You know, they stare at you and and uh, you say, uh, the Hebrew word for knowledge is yada, Y-A-D-A. Yada means experience of God, not intellectual knowledge. Now, for them, you might as well talk Greek to most Bible students today. Now, Hosea 4 verse 6, mm, familiar verse, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. Isn't it interesting? Not because you don't know it, you rejected it. What knowledge is this? You say, again, the people will scream at you. What do you mean I rejected knowledge? I went for Bible study every week. Oh, 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 yada, yada, experiential knowledge. You have rejected, totally rejected. Because I, when I talk to Christians, they just reject it. The moment you use the word knowledge, they stare back at you. And I know they've never experienced God. He's just verses to quote and show off. Have they really seen that verse in reality in their life? Answer, no. All right? Okay, that's the main reason why they turn away from God. He's just verses. He's good for Sunday. It's good for my rest of the time. I need the other things to help me. I need my... I, you know, scheming in the office, I need my shares, I need my health food, I need my whatever <clears throat> to make me satisfied and happy. It's not from God. It's not from God. God's for the Bible study, God is for the Sunday, Sunday, and God is for heaven, right? On this earth, I need other things. Please, don't be fanatical, PC, right? You mean God can provide everything? Are you joking? Yes, I'm not joking. I've seen it on the mission field. He provided everything I needed. Everything. Right? I've experienced it. All right. Then we see in Hebrews chapter 12 to verse 14, some more warnings. And then he ends with, um, okay, with 11 verse 8 and 9. Sorry. Let me, let me go back to 11. Nice. 11, 8 and 9. Hmm. Uh, let me see, is it 11? Yeah, 8 and 9. <laughs> no, okay. Hebrews, uh, let's just get it. Yeah, I think it's correct. I'm sorry, I got the wrong. Okay, let's look here. Hebrews 11, 8 and 9. How can I give you up? Oh, Ephraim, how can I hand you over, oh, Israel? How can I make you like Adma, which you don't know what it is? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I cannot give you up. Picture of Hosea, 
with his wife. Then chapter 14, we see in chapter 14, which is the last chapter, verse 4. Finally, all the warnings are not going to change. God says, don't worry. One day, I will heal your apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. It's a hint that God will give them a new heart. Very hint to me, all right? This is not the, the main theme of Hosea, right? In other books that God will give you a new spirit, a new heart. No, this is not the main theme. It's God's loyalty. In verse 8, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Don't turn to anyone else. From me, you get everything. There's no need to turn to cow gods, bill gods, whatever gods. I am your everything. Work hard, but trust it's God that blesses your work. Do whatever you need to do. I'm not saying just sit down, God bless you. But air behind every pill, behind every success, behind every study you do, it's God that blesses you. God, Jehovah God, all right? Not the pill, not the scheming you did, it's God. And then the last verse seems it's added, this is added by the editor, I think, of this whole book <laughs> that collected the collections of uh, Hosea's thing. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is discerning? Let him know them. This is the last verse. For the ways of God are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Whosoever is wise, let him understand these things. What things? Understand the loving, steadfast love of God. That God never gives up. That marriage is a covenant that God put together that no man put asunder. Israel and God is a covenant that will never stop. In the last days, you will see Israel back again. Totally back. In that book of Revelation, you will see a Amazing things. Your eyes will pop out. We already see 1948 Israel come back as a nation after 2,000 years. That anyone who studies politics, the economy says that's impossible. A whole language came up, a whole nation came up out of the ashes 2,000 years ago. But one day you'll see Israel back and you'll see the redeemed of the Lord, the church. The church, people who had somehow just forgotten God, turned from God, God never turns from us. Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting. The compassion, the steadfast love of God is forever. Alright, so I hope here you will see the word keset, C-E-S-C-H-E-S-E-D, steadfast love of God. In the life of Hosea, see the suffering of God as we turn and turn and turn. And that faithful God 
who will still love us. What a God! Poor Hosea to live that life to help us grasp this. And you know what? The vast majority of Christians never read this book and never understood this and never know that they're worshipping a golden calf in the name, in their ID, they call themselves Christians. How far they are. They're not believers. They're like Israel. All right? So I hope today you will grasp this book, but most of all, see the love. God says, how can I give you up? Not possible. All right? That's God's love for you and me. So please listen to the book and get the mood. The message will give you the mood. After that, listening to it once, you want to read it in a different version, whatever version, please go ahead. But I suggest you get the feel of how God feels about you and me every time we turn, turn, turn to other gods. May God bless you with a peep understanding of the heart of your God. God bless you.